0: Reading from Acts chapter 17, uh, we read last week that uh, Paul and Silas were in uh, Thessalonica and uh, some Jews there believed, some Greeks there believed. Um, Then some other Jews got really upset and made a big fuss, so we pick up the story at the end of the visit to Thessalonica. As soon as it was night the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens, and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible.
1: Something you either may or may not know about me is that after high school I spent about 10 years in hospitality. There's a few reasons why I did that. I love the idea of actually sort of working with really interesting people. If you want to meet people from far off lands that are backpacking through Australia, hospitality is the place to meet them. The other thing is you can learn some really cool skills that make you look really great at parties and things like that uh, you're doing. That was another reason. But to be honest, it was mostly because I completely bombed out my HSC and had no other choice but to go into hospitality anyway. But the thing that was the skills was something I really enjoyed about working in the industry. You learn stuff that you don't need to learn how to do in normal everyday life. I worked in a cocktail bar for a while and I really pushed myself and I learned all the flary tricks that you see in the movies for a little while. I used to show off like that. I used to be a waiter for quite a while too. And there was something that really set a different wait- waiters apart differently to each other. You either could do it or you couldn't do it, which was how many, how many plates you could carry. The bare minimum was really three. If you can't carry three, you're just not a full waiter. You usually start off at two, but you've got to work your way up. I did get to four, thank you very much, um, in, in my time. But you wanted to do three. Uh, it's And it's pr- quite easy. There's a, two ways that you can do it. The main way that I would do it is you have one plate here and a thumb and, a f- and your pinky finger there, and you get this stable area here, or you do this curved thing if your fingers aren't quite long enough. That's another way of doing it too. But man, is it nerve-wracking. Like It's a real concept. I used to train people how to do this, and the look on their faces when you're trying to explain them, yes, a whole meal is going to rest on your forearm. And not only do you have to kind of hold it for a little while, you've got to carry it from the kitchen, do the weird backwards walk through the doorway of the kitchen, hope you don't trip over the way through, get to the table, and then put the meals down without dropping them, without spilling them, because everybody's watching you and everyone's waiting for you to make a mistake. I did accidentally put a bit of barbecue sauce on Leighton Hewitt's collar one time when I was working at a restaurant. He and Beck and the family turned up for a Mother's Day meal and I was sneaking past and I saw a little smudge and I kept going and nothing was ever said about it. But When I was training people, what I found was really interesting was that they would actually be able to do it for a little while, but as soon as things got more you know, intense, a bit more anxious, a little bit harder, things just seemed tougher, they'd often revert back to doing the two plates, especially in big events, big functions, when things were really busy. They were just anxious about this new concept not getting them through to the end. The short-term solution was, let's just go back to two plates and everything will be okay but they were never going to be as, as effective as they would have been if they were carrying three plates as well. And it's quite interesting, this, the whole thing that when we get anxious, don't we all end up reverting back to this sort of default that we have, this comfortable thing that we just know so well, something that we know we can do it, we're comfortable with, it sort of fits everything, let's just go back to there and we'll worry about challenging ourselves later. What's really interesting is that in our passage today, we're following on, as was said, into a new town. But Paul has gone from Thessalonica, where he was went to the synagogue. He was preaching about the Messiah, and he was arguing from Scripture, saying, See, can't you see that Jesus is the Messiah? Can't you see from here what has been promised throughout the Old Testament, that Jesus clearly is the, the Messiah? The people in Thessalonica got outraged about it. They were angry. and They chased him out of town for this because they protested so much this what seemed to be new concept could be. So in the cover of darkness, Paul travels down about 72 kilometres southwest of Thessalonica to a place called Berea, where the people here are described a bit differently to those in Thessalonica. These people are more noble. They are of more noble birth. The Greek word behind it basically means like good offspring, or as my late grandmother would say, they come from good stock. Uh, These people had a higher status in life. They had a higher position. They are probably a bit more wealthy, and they were definitely more educated. And we see here that in verse 11, that now the Bereans... The Berean Jews were more, no, of more noble character than those in Thessalonica and they were receive the message with great eagerness and examine the scriptures every day to see what Paul said was true. So in Thessalonica, the Thessalonians kick him out. They chase him out of town, but it's very different here in Berea. The people here just seem to be more open-minded which is actually what is meant by calling them noble. There is something about them that means they're actually humble enough to think critically about what they know. They're humble enough to want to know the truth. They're also completely primed for the truth. They're more educated than the the Thessalonians. And they sort of experience a bit of comfort that they, in Thessalonica, don't. They have this ability to be able to take in a new idea and play with it, hear the evidence, and weigh it up for itself. And then the result is that many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. It wasn't just that the Jews here were primed, primes, but the fact that they responded so well that the others around them saw the difference, and they also believed in this Messiah that Paul was preaching. But why were the Thessalonians so uptight? Why were they so aggressive? Why do they want to make sure that Paul was out of there? They want to make sure that they squashed this idea of the Messiah that Paul was preaching. It was so bad that they wanted to make sure not only are they going to stop it here where we live, but we're going to go down to Berea and stop him there as well. This Messiah that Paul is preaching needs to be destroyed. It needs to be squashed. It needs to be stopped. Nobody can hear about it because it is dangerous. Why is it that they are so close-minded? What is it about the Messiah that Paul is preaching that causes such concern? Well, it's the idea that this Messiah needed to suffer. He needed to die, to to be raised again. It was the fact that Jesus is this promised Messiah. The Thessalonians had prejudices against this concept. They didn't want this whole bigger picture of the Messiah that Paul was preaching. They were stuck with what they knew. They were stuck with what they were comfortable with. And in a state of anxiety under Roman rule it was better just to stick with what you know. Because at the moment, Rome is leaving them alone to a more extent than the others, so let's not rock the boat. But what is the Messiah? What is a Messiah? Well, let's have a look at it. See, the Messiah is kind of a word we throw around church and some understand what it is and some may not because like me at once upon a time when I was 25, you sort of tap in and everyone expects you to understand what everyone's talking about, but you don't quite know. So a Messiah, very simply, is someone who is chosen by God and is anointed to be a king or a prophet, which is a bit of a strange concept to us. The anointing is something that requires oil over the head of someone that God has chosen we think it's a bit strange, but actually, it's a practice that we still see today. Uh, King Charles had exactly this happen to him behind that uh, screen that's put up there. The same thing, when during his coronation, it is a symbol that he has been chosen by God to lead the, his people. And the oil that he is anointed with is a symbol of his kingship over the people. David, we find in the Old Testament, A king who is after God's own heart was also anointed with oil. Uh, He was anointed with oil, and then he was given the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon him to, to empower him to be the king that God had chosen him to be. The kings and the prophets throughout the Old Testament Talk about this Messiah. The prophets speak about this promised king who would come along one day and save God's people. So let's rewind back to the start because we see even in Genesis 3 is this image of this promised Messiah. When everything has gone completely wrong, the Messiah, this image of this king, this promised king who would come and save God's people and put everything right is there. God says to the serpent that cursed are you because of what has happened, that I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and her offspring will come to you and will crush your head. But in doing so, you will strike him. In Samuel, when, with King David, God promises David that actually from his line, one of his offspring who is going to succeed him, God will establish a kingdom through him, not a human kingdom that has limits and boundaries by time and life expectancy, but this is a kingdom that will be established forever, a throne that is eternal. Now, I do wonder sometimes, isn't there a bit of a question mark when it comes to Jesus? If Paul is talking about, you know, Jesus being the Messiah, I don't remember anywhere in the Gospels where Jesus had oil poured on him like that when he became king. Shouldn't that be the case if Paul is saying that Jesus is the Messiah and we all need to have faith in him and see him as our king? Shouldn't he have the same stuff that all the other kings have had? But in Mark's Gospel, we see that it did happen. When Mark records that when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. He went under the water and he raised from the water. Heaven opened and God said, This is my son from whom I am well pleased. And the spirit came upon him. Same imagery, just a little bit different. But this is the symbol, this is the sign that Jesus is in fact not just our Messiah, our king, but the king, the promised king. Matthew's Gospel actually says that he is a descendant from David. So that promise is fulfilled in Jesus himself. But there's a bit of a problem when it comes to waiting, isn't there? When you're waiting on a promise for so long, and you have this particular image in your head that just transforms with the passage of time. Over time, God's people were waiting for this promised Messiah to come along. And when he did come along in Jesus, it didn't fit with the image that they had in their heads. They were expecting a warrior king who would come in and completely obliterate all the people that were oppressing them. At this time, it was Rome. They were under Roman oppression and they were expecting the day of judgment. God would send his Messiah and rain judgment on those who were oppressing them. For the Jews, judgment, God's judgment, was an incredibly good thing because it's going to get the Romans out. It's going to clear all the impurity that's in the land and we can go back to what we're supposed to be doing the way we're supposed to be doing it. In Psalm 2, it records this idea of the Messiah being this warrior king, that he's going to break God's people's enemies with a rod of iron. He is going to dash them like pieces of pottery. It's not just here we sort of see this image, that in extra-biblical writing at the time in the first century, there's writings called the Songs of Solomon, where they actually sing to each other songs about this warrior king, and there's the same imagery, only more violent, of what is going to happen to, to the, those who are pressing them when the Messiah finally arrives. That is the promise they're looking for. That is what they're waiting for. This is the image of what the Messiah is. But it's only half of the image. Because there's other parts in the Old Testament that point to the Messiah being much more than that, another side to the Messiah. In Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah records that when the Messiah comes, he'll be like a shoot growing from the ground. There's going to be nothing about him that attracts us to him. In fact, he's going to be despised. He's going to be rejected. A man of suffering, sent to be punished by God. He's going to be pierced for our transgressions. He will serve us in this way. He'll be oppressed, afflicted. The promised Messiah will be like a lamb to the slaughter. This is not the image of this warrior king that they were expecting. But there was this image that challenged those in Thessalonica so much that they got so angry and so jealous. But it didn't just challenge them. As we heard last week, that Caesar Augustus was being called the son of God. His father, the Caesar before him, was now divine. And he is divine too because he's his son. There's even plaques saying so much. But jesus this upstart from nazareth this hick is now being called by the people the son of god and he is punished and died for this uprising he seems to cause under roman rule the title is a challenge the messiah has challenged the romans at the time has challenged the the power structures but he's not just this. He's also the suffering king. He is the one that is promised by God, not just a challenge to Caesar or the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. See, the issue is the difference between how those in Berea and those in Thessalonica are perceiving and waiting for this Messiah and how open minded and closed minded they are. The Thessalonicans are jealous. The people that are there actually are likely synagogue leaders who see this as a threat to their t- teaching. They're not just influ- influencing the ethnic Jews amongst them, but also the Gentiles who are converted. And because this new idea, this Messiah, has come in, some persons walked in to their patch and said, "Actually, the Messiah is more than you're expecting. He's this suffering servant, this humble person as well that will come and die for, for you and will suffer." This is threatening them and they are afraid that the people that they are leading will be led astray by this. And you can understand why they are jealous, why they are so, so nervous about this. Put yourself in their shoes. You're a leader of a group of people. Someone walks in and starts saying something very different to what you've been teaching. You're responsible for these people after all. And at the moment, you have a pretty okay agreement with the Romans. It's not great, but it's okay. We can still worship God the way we we should. Others are no longer allowed to worship God, but we can still worship our God so long as we pray to our God for Rome. Someone's come in and challenged the teaching, challenged our status as leaders. I thought we were in charge of this place. I thought we were the ones that were educated, that were chosen by God to be the ones leading this. And these people have come in, which what seems like something that is so untrue to what we understand, And we don't want things to change. You can understand why they get closed-minded, why they want to go back to their default, why they want to go back to what they're comfortable with. And isn't that the same with us? When we feel anxious, don't we just want to go back to our defaults? When we feel the pressures, the pressure, don't we want to go back to what is comfortable? Don't we just prefer not to rock the boat? But the problem is the messiah that they're believing in is only half of a messiah. It's a half truth, which means the other half that they believe in is a half lie. There's a Greek um magist- ancient Greek magistrate has this amazing qu- quote about the dangers of half-truths. A half-truth is worse than all lies because it can be defended in partiality. See, they had every right to defend this, it was half true, but it blinded them. To the other half. They defended the warrior king, but they were blinded to the suffering servant. And won't we do that ourselves these days? The only problem is we kind of do it in the reverse. We're happy with the servant, but we really don't like the idea of this warrior king bringing judgment. We much prefer that the Messiah is someone that encourages us to be unhappy because our Messiah doesn't want us to be unhappy. He's here to help us be our best self, like a cheerleader on the sideline, cheering on. On you go, please keep going. You're doing just great. Or like a Native American spirit animal, giving guidance, power, and wisdom so that you can be all that you are supposed to be. The problem is, Jesus is all that we're supposed to be. If we want to understand who we should be, what the biggest image of the greatness of, hum, of humanity is supposed to be the glory that God has created us to be you look at Jesus to see that is not within ourselves the best part of ourselves, the best that we can be is like Jesus those in Berea were more noble they were educated they were of a higher class, so they experienced less anxiety around them they had the framework and the ability to actually take in and understand the fuller concept of the full Messiah. They had openness and willingness to be able to hear and accept the better story. The stories that, were, that they have now accepted is the fuller picture of the Messiah. I can't help but think that maybe these two towns, these two stories in Thessalonica and Berea have been put together to kind of show us that actually when it comes to sharing the Messiah, we should actually expect two responses. Those that challenges and make them je- jealous and, re- and give, us, give rejection to the Messiah and those who are eager and want to learn more. So what does this all mean? Well, I think it means that when it comes to sharing, sharing Jesus, we should expect both responses, jealousy and eagerness. We have a bad habit of focusing on the jealousy and the rejection that we get so discouraged that we feel like it's something we don't want to do, that, it's not, that we don't want to rock the boat. We feel the pressure of that. And it's completely understandable. Our culture has, has changed. Things have shifted. We're now in a post-Christian culture that doesn't have the same frameworks to be able to see and understand what we're trying to share with people. And it's very easy to be discouraged. But don't overlook the hope. The people in Berea are there to encourage us that actually people will respond with eagerness and they will want to know more. I am very aware there are people here today among us, who later in their life were told about this Messiah, the full Messiah, and it has been the most refreshing thing in their lives. It's something they've responded to with eagerness and wanted to know more, to understand how the Creator of the universe humbled Himself in order to save us, save His people, to be raised and enthroned as the eternal King. So don't lose hope. We need to expect both we don't want to be discouraged by the rejection in fact we want to be energized by the hope of people those who will be eager and don't forget either that we are in this together the end of this passage and the end of the one, one last week shows us that the believers help paul get out he's sharing the messiah but they help him to be safe and also when it comes to discipleship timothy stays back and silas stay back not just to help the, those who have been converted to grow into disciples themselves not not long just challenged but actually forming who they are so be energized by the hope that we have and be ready for something for an opportunity to share the whole messiah with people i had quite a few opportunities uh the last couple of years during the lockdowns my best friend called me out of the blue in a time of distress for him and his family, wanting to find hope. He's got a bit of a nominal Catholic background, so we had some framework to work with. But every time when I pointed to him in Mark's Gospel that we're going through, that actually Jesus is kind of saying that he's God here, it blew his mind. It challenged who he was and how he understood things. There was a wedding I was at where one of the groomsmen knew I was going into ministry and asked me about the troubles that he was going in. And I was actually able to share with him how differently this Messiah, the whole Messiah has changed the way I saw things before I was a Christian until now. We also need to help foster eagerness, be involved with people. Give them a chance to see the difference the whole Messiah makes. Share the better story. Because when you have good news, true good news that you know within your heart, And how significant that is, you want to share that with everyone. So be encouraged, foster the eagerness, and be ready to share the good news. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you sent your Son as the promised Messiah. Help us to be challenged and to share the whole fullness of Jesus' Messiahship with those around us. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.